Psalm 74 is a song for calamity. A song for calamity. The psalmist Asaph pens this psalm during a time of crisis. The temple has been destroyed. The Israelites have been dispersed. Now, based upon these evidence, this Asaph is not the friend of David, as the destruction and dispersion did not occur until some 400 years later. Most likely, this psalm is penned by the Levitical singers who bore his name. Now, in this psalm, Asaph laments the calamity that has befallen his people. How can a calamity be part of God's plan and program for his people? No doubt, many believers today struggle with that same question. How does calamity fit within the framework of God's plan and program? Asaph begins looking at his present miseries, then looks back to past mercies, and finally looks up with a perspective meditation. Now, as we go through this psalm, we're going to divide it into three parts. Three parts. First, we're going to look at verses 1 through 11, the present miseries. Verses 1 through 11, the present miseries. Then we'll continue with verses 12 to 17 and looking back at past mercies. Verses 12 to 17, past mercies. And then finally, we'll end with a study on verses 18 to 23 and the perspective meditation. The perspective meditation. For this devotional, we're just going to focus on the first part. Part 1, the present miseries. Again, Psalm 74, Song for Calamity. Part 1, Present Miseries, verses 1 through 11. Now let's begin by reading verses 1 through 2, and we're going to see Asaph's supplication. Asaph's supplication. O God, why have you rejected us forever? Why does your anger smoke against the sheep of your pasture? Remember your congregation which you have purchased of old, which you have redeemed to be the tribe of your inheritance, and this Mount Zion where you have dwelt. Now verse 1 begins with a cry of despair. It asks that age-old question, why? Why, God, have you rejected us forever? Now his experience is that God has rejected him, but here's what's questionable. Why does he think it's been forever? Why does he view God's rejection as final and eternal? Uh, because it's obvious that he's praying for restoration as, you, as we work our way through this entire psalm. But what we're seeing here is his perspective in the moment. The devastation is so awesome. The, 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 uh, the trial that he's experiencing seems like it's never going to end. And we've all been there when we've been experiencing a situation and it just feels like it's never going to end. It, there, there never seems to be relief. There never seems to be an end in sight. There's no light at the end of the tunnel. That's his experience with his present calamity. The parallel thought, why does your anger smoke against the sheep of your pasture? This focuses on God's anger. God, why are you angry with us? Now, it's interesting because the word anger uh, signifies the sound of snorting. Okay, The Hebrew word here describes the sound of snorting that uh, one would make through the nose. Uh, uh, whether it's an animal snorting or a person snorting, you know, it's that you know what that sounds like. And that's a description of God's anger. God is so angry, he is snorting at them. So much so that smoke is blowing out of his nose at Israel. Uh, why does your anger, why does your snorting smoke against the sheep of your pasture? Uh, 
Uh, again, that's Israel. But I want you to note the contrast here because you have God's violent wrath. You know, he's snorting, blowing smoke like a wild, ferocious predator. And here's Israel, this helpless, meek flock of sheep. After challenging God's rejection with his why, he immediately responds in verse 2 by calling on Yahweh to remember his people. He says, remember your congregation which you have purchased of old. Uh, they are a redeemed tribe, the tribe of your inheritance. Now, they are a purchased congregation and a redeemed tribe. In other words, they are bound in a covenant to him. Now, as a congregation, Israel was called out. They had a divine call in Exodus. God called them out of Egypt to be his people. And that's what the idea of tribe represents, that Israel was God's own people. That they are in his inheritance means that they bear his name. So congregation, they were called out and gathered together. A tribe, they're his people. And inheritance means they bear his name. And again, all of that happened. The bearing of his name, the, the uh, calling out uh, and gathering together, and being his people, all of that happened because of God's intervention. Notice it's he purchased them. He redeemed them. And it's interesting because these two words, purchase and redeemed, parallel one another because really what is redemption but a purchase? A payment is being paid to release or to uh, someone from enslavement or to inquire someone. And so Israel was set free. They were slaves. They were enslaved to Pharaoh's house of bondage, Exodus 20, verse 2. And God redeemed them. He purchased them. He bought them out of the marketplace. And he brought them to the promised land where they would build God's house on Mount Zion in Jerusalem. And so, verse 2 is crying out, Remember your people. Remember your place. So when he's talking about Mount Zion, he's talking about the place that, where the temple was built where God dwells. So, God, why are you angry? Why have you rejected us? Why does it feel like it's never going to end? You know, we're the sheep of your pasture. You're coming at us like this ferocious animal. And, you know, Lord, you need to remember us. You called us. You gathered us. You, you, you made us your people. We bear your name. Lord, if not for us, how about your temple? And again, he's supplicating before God. Now think about what the psalmist does amid his calamity. He first asks God why. And second, he reminds God of his commitment to his people who are now under judgment. Lord, remember your covenant. Remember your people with favor. And that's a great lesson for us when we're going through calamities. And really, the world is filled with calamity. Uh, you know, there's national calamities, there's global calamities, there's natural calamities, there's calamities of war, there's calamity of disease, there's calamity uh, that we experience individually. And, you know, so very much we are re uh, aware of calamity. The question is, what do we do? Do we hide under our sheets? Do we pull the sheet up over our head and just hide and hope it goes away when we wake up in the morning? 
uh, you know, do we bury our head in the sand? Do we just eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow we die? No, the response that we need to have as believers is what Asaph does here. First, ask God why. And second, remember or remind God of his commitment to his people. Now that brings us to verses 3 through 8, and we see sacrilege. So verses 1 and 2 is supplication, but now Asaph writes of sacrilege in verses 3 through 8. Turn your footsteps towards the perpetual ruins. The enemy has damaged everything within the sanctuary. Your adversaries have roared in the midst of your meeting place. They have set up their own standards for signs. It seems as if one has lifted up his axe in a forest of trees, and now all of its carved work they smash with hatchet and hammers. They have burned your sanctuary to the ground. They have defiled the dwelling place of your name. They said in their heart, let us completely subdue them. They have burned all the meeting places of God in the land. The psalmist is begging God, please intervene and turn your footsteps. Literally, God, let's take a walk back through the burned city of Jerusalem. Let's walk back and see the devastated temple where you've dwelt in the past. And so in this sacrilege passage, verses 3 through 8, we have a very graphic picture of the temple and the city's destruction. And the psalmist is, is crying out to God to awaken God's anger, not towards Israel, but to Israel's enemies, and to rekindle his compassion towards Israel. And so he draws out this very graphic picture. And let's look at the picture for a moment. First of all, in verses 3, the city is ruined. It's a perpetual ruin or desolation. Now, this tells us that the conquest of Jerusalem had taken place prior to his writing this psalm. So, you know, the city's been destroyed. And here, here's Asaph, or here's the singers named after Asaph, and they're walking through the city, and they're taking in all of this destruction. Second, the sanctuary, the holy place, is also in ruins. So the city's ruined, the, the, the temple's ruined. And notice the third thing, God's enemies not only have damaged everything within the sanctuary, they have roared in the midst of your meeting place. Now the meeting place would be the temple. And the enemy's roar is the fact that they're boasting. They're standing there in the temple they're desecrating, they're committing sacrilege in God's temple, and they're boasting of it. They're laughing about it. They're carrying on and, and making a mockery of God's temple. He goes on and says, they have set up their own standards for signs. Now, a standard is probably a military banner. And so they've erected the, their military banner in the temple and saying that it's now their occupied territory. You know, it's almost as if they're declaring a victory over Yahweh. Next, number four, the temple's been plundered. Okay, notice what it says here. Uh, they lifted up an axe in a forest of trees. Now all of its carved works have been smashed with hatchet and hammer. And so all of the wooden carvings have been destroyed. By the way, if you want to read more about this, uh, read Jeremiah 52, particularly verses 13 and uh, down through the end of the chapter, and it will give you a depiction of what exactly happened. And so, again, 
you know, we have Jeremiah giving us a blow-by-blow of the destruction, and here's Asaph looking back and saying, yeah, here's what's happened. So we have confirmation of this event. So all the wooden carvings have been destroyed. Fifth, they've burned the temple down. They've burned your sanctuary to the ground, okay? Now, again, just picture, if you will, uh, 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 you know, what maybe you've seen on the news, devastation of a war zone. And certainly, uh, we turn on the news today and we see various war zones throughout the world. And we see these pictures of the, uh, of the destruction that's left behind. That's what, that's what Asaph's describing here. That's what Jerusalem looked like. That's what the temple looked like. It's just an empty shell. Nothing's left standing. It's been burned to the ground. Number six, it's been totally defiled. Now, the word that's used there they have defiled your dwelling place. It literally means to pollute. Uh, there's a number of ways they could have polluted it, desecrated it. Uh, we think of uh, Antiochus Epiphanes. Now, again, that's not in this context, but uh, Antiochus Epiphanes comes way after this. This is during the Antiochus Epiphanes uh, takes place uh, several hundred years later. But when he comes in and destroys the temple... Uh, he desecrated, desecrates it by sacrificing a pig on the altar because he knows that pig were, pigs were unclean animals. And so rather he comes in and so to desecrate or to pollute the temple, he makes this pagan sacrifice uh, to uh, Mercury, I believe the god Mercury. Well, we don't know the specifics of exactly how they polluted it, but I'm sure there were unclean sacrifices that were made uh, as a mockery, okay, uh, to pollute uh, the sacred place of worship. He goes on and he says that uh, uh, that they've burned the sanctuary, they defile the holy place. They said in their heart, "Let us completely subdue them." Now, notice what comes after that. So, there's a decision. We are going to totally immoralize these people. We're going to totally destroy these people spiritually, not just physically, but mentally, emotionally. And so what do they do? They burned all the meeting places. So you have the temple in Jerusalem, but then there were various places of worship uh, where people, where each of the tribes could gather weekly and so forth. They went through the whole land and started burning them all down, desecrating every one of them, polluting every one of them. You know, this is complete um, destruction, but complete uh, psychological warfare against the people of God. Also, I want you to notice as we've read our way through verses 3 through 8, uh, the number of personal pronouns indicating that it's God who owned the temple. It's not the Jewish temple, it's God's temple. And Asaph's doing this because he wants God, uh, as he's pleading with God, God, it's not our temple, it's your temple they're desecrating. So again, just a couple, let me name a couple of these uh, ownership statements. Verse 2, it's his mountain. Uh, verse 4, it's his meeting place. Verse 7, it's his sanctuary where his name or his presence dwells. Verse 8, uh, it's uh, they said in their hearts, they thought intended to pull down the meeting places, the whole temple, uh, which belong to him, the meeting places of God. And so uh, the, the, there, this is a horrific scene that I really hope that as you read through this, you can just, in your mind's eye, get a picture of what's happening and what Asaph is saying. Now this brings us to, down to verses 9 through 11 and the suspension. The suspension. We do not see our signs. 
There is no longer any prophet, nor is there any among us who knows how long. How long, O God, will the adversary revile? And the enemy spurn your name forever. Why do you withdraw your hand, even your right hand, from within your bosom? Destroy them. Now, the psalmist recounts what he's seen or what he doesn't see. He says, first of all, there's no signs. Now, this could be a reference to military standards in verse 4. We don't see, you know, we, you know, where's our army? Where's our military banners? That's one. But there's another in the immediate context. It could refer to the symbols of faith that were taken from the temple. Uh, it could also indicate the signs that accompanied the prophetic words, such as miracles, which Deuteronomy 18.22 says that a prophet would confirm his word or his prophecies with miracles. Now, I, I would lean to the latter, that it's a reference, these signs is a reference to the miracles associated with the prophetic word. Uh, and, and the reason why I favor that is what we see here. There's no prophet. Okay? We don't see our signs. There's no longer any prophet. We don't see any miracles. We don't hear from any prophets. You, God, are silent. Okay? And God, God's silence is a sign of judgment. So the lack of miracles and the lack of prophets are a sign that God is judging them. God, there's no work, there's no word from God. And so, the absence of the prophet means we don't know how long this is going to last. You know, if, if a prophet would come along and say, okay, listen, you know, God has declared that this is only going to last six months, they, that gives them hope. Or even if it's only going to last a year, they have hope. But they have no hope because no one's there to tell them how long. And so he cries out, God, please... Draw your right hand. Draw your hand of power, your hand of authority. That's from Exodus 15, verse 6. God's mighty right hand, the hand of battle. Lord, you've withdrawn it. You, you've got it kept within you, next, next, to your, uh, next to your bosom. God, pull it, out of, pull it away from your bosom. Ec uh, extend your hand and destroy the enemy. Show your hand. He wants God to act. He wants God to smack back the enemies. He wants God to destroy the, 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 the kingdoms of this world that have destroyed the temple, that have destroyed their land, that have dispersed their people, and he wants God to restore their fortunes. Now we're going to pause here, and next time we'll pick up with verses 12 through 17 and the past mercies. But as we pause here, I do want to read verse 12 because I don't want to end on a negative note. I want to end with some positive because, again, we're going through calamity. We're experiencing calamity, and certainly we can identify with Asaph's present miseries. But look at verse 12. Yet God is my king of old, who works deeds of deliverance in the midst of the earth. Folks, there is hope. And so... When you're going through a calamity, cry out, ask God why, and remind God of your relationship with him. But then look back. Go back and review God's past mercies and see what God will begin to do and how he'll begin, maybe not to remove the calamity, but how he'll begin to transform your mindset in the calamity. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, we come before you before your throne of grace because of your son 
Because your Son is our great high priest who makes intercession for us, we are able to boldly come before this throne of grace and to cry out to you in times of trouble. We're able to come to you for help in a time of need. And Father, certainly we are a needy people. We live in a needy world. We live in a world filled with calamity. Calamities all around us, whether on, whether globally in various war zones around the world or whether calamities in our own life of uh, disease, distress, death, destruction. And so, Father God, as uh, we come... Uh, we, we come crying out to you as your people, as our God, casting ourselves upon you, Lord, desiring to do your will, but Father, confessing that we so often are overwhelmed by the calamities that we become paralyzed, and uh, we, we sit in astonishment, Father. Uh, and so, Lord, I pray that you would uh, help us to see that you are not silent that you are not just sitting there and doing nothing, but we can go back and look at your actions in the past and know what you're doing in the present. And in doing that, Father, I pray that it would stir us to once again get back to to serving you, to doing what you would have us to do. Father, we confess that, uh, Lord, we, we don't often understand, and because we don't understand, we sometimes take our eyes off of you, and we try to put our eyes on the situation and figure out how we're going to fix it. Uh, ultimately, Father, we have to confess and forsake that because our eyes must always be focused upon you. So, Lord, I ask that you would lead us, guide us, direct us, Father. We pray that, uh, Lord, you would get all the glory from us as we seek to obey you, as we strive to serve you. And to these things we pray. Amen.